This episode of Three Spooked Girls is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Honestly, it was so easy to get started. From our initial account setup to choosing our sponsors and even chatting with our support team, everything was so quick and user-friendly. We couldn't have asked for a better experience to get started with sponsors. Also with Podcorn, there's no middleman, and we love that they include podcasters of all sizes. It was super easy to browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set up our own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step to ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when we monetize. Head to the link in our show notes to sign up on Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. I'm your host, Jessica. And as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. This week, we are talking about probably one of the most epic clusterfucks of modern times when it comes to politically handling true crimey stuff. We're talking about Waco this week. We are. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's all I can say. A lot of you are probably at home listening to this. So um, you can actually grab a drink. Do it. We're recording this in the morning on the day we're doing it. So I have ginger ale. But I mean, I drank alcohol researching this. So good enough. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it was a process to go through this. Mm-hmm. You can find us on all the social medias. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. If you want to have fun conversations, look at some great memes memes, share your mugs, puppies, babies. I don't think anyone's shared their babies yet, but you know. Yeah. If you want to share some of the fun things happening in your life, head over to our Facebook group, which is Three Spooked Girls Official. It is so much fun. I love hanging out with everyone in there. We've been having watch parties in there where we are watching different episodes on Friday nights of different shows, maybe some movies. We don't know. In real time, we've done one and we're going to do one later today. It was so much fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Like, I'm so glad we decided to try it out. And I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. So, yeah, we're doing them every Friday of April, which is this month that we are in now, which is crazy. We're all in lockdown. So we thought we would connect. Yes. With social distancing. Yes. (laughs) And one of them is the day before my birthday. So that will be pretend virtual birthday party, I guess. I'll have to update that one. Because there's Facebook events to remind y'all when these are going down. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. I was like, yay, because now it's just in my phone and will remind me. And well, I mean, I kind of already know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but Allison asked if we would mind putting those together. So I just kind of notification bombed the group. Sorry, guys. And made them all for the whole month. So they are there. They are there for you guys to remind you. Every Friday at 6 Pacific time, we watching something. (laughs) Yes. So that's a fun thing to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Also, we're trying this like once we call it a quarter, but it's once a season for us, I guess, is we're going to be doing a live stream in the Facebook group. And so on April 14th, we are going to be doing a live stream, the regular Facebook group. And Tara and I are going to be discussing the Moon River Brewing Company in Savannah, Georgia. So tune in. It's at 545 that night. Um, and that's Pacific time. Yes. And there's an event, too. So check it out. Definitely. And then you can come and interact with us. Basically, you're going to see how we do a regular episode, except for we will pause throughout it to interact with you on different comments, questions, things you may have. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash three spooked girls, or there's a link in the link tree in the show notes. We have some amazing content going up over there. I know that we released, I believe, five episodes of what we've done. Mm -hmm. So it's a little snippet of what we do. And I just feel like our patron episodes are so fun. (laughs) Yeah, they are. They're a lot of fun. All tiers get a bonus episode each month. Tier two and up get access to a fun new series we've started called Jessica Slaughter's Movie Reviews. I believe when you're hearing this, two episodes of those have come out. And then I think one's coming out manana. Yes. So stay tuned for that. It's it's fun. It's broken up into two different ones. So the first episode of each month is I basically tell the plot of a story in a very misdirective way so that our Spookster Club patrons can try to guess what it is. And then the second one is I just review a movie and tell you the plot and like what I think and some background and whatnot. And those have turned out, I think they're pretty fun. Oh, yeah. They're a good time. They're definitely fun to listen to. So definitely check those out, guys. Mm -hmm. And then our five and ups get some different swag and they get some video content and so on. So definitely check it out. As little as a dollar gets you at least one extra bonus episode a month. Two dollars a month gets you basically three extra episodes a month. Yeah. And we just want to say thank you guys so much for everyone who is a current patron supporter. We are so grateful to you guys who have been supporting the show. And in real time, we have gotten quite a few new patrons. And we know this time is just very uncertain. So we just want to say thank you so much for continuing to support us here on the podcast. It really does mean so much. Yes. Thank you guys so much. So before we head into our promos for this week, I'm going to tell you about the drink that the Bell Witch and I found for you. Yay. Since we are going to be talking about Waco, Texas, I thought we would do a Texas sunrise because it is made with my favorite vodka Tito's. So you'll need one and a half ounces of Tito's vodka, passion fruit juice. Basically, the note in the recipe says you can get that at any liquor store. I guess you could use whatever you would like. (laughs) (laughs) To make it, you place ice in a glass, pour the vodka over top with passion fruit juice, add grenadine, just enough to give it that beautiful separation of color. Okay. And then there you go. You will have a Texas sunrise. I am not drinking one because currently it is before noon. And though it might be quarantine time, I am really trying not to drink before five. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a quick 
promo break. And then when we come back, Tara's going to tell us some stuff about this clusterfuck. Hello, and welcome to the Realm of Unknown. My name is Shane, and I shall be your guide along this strange adventure into a world all its own, filled to the brim with wonders and mysteries. A podcast that focuses on all things paranormal and supernatural. Join me, your host, each week as we dive deep into unique stories and legends about the unexplained and strange from all around the globe. You can find Realm of Unknown on all your favorite podcast listening platforms such as Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and more. So come join us and take part in our next journey into the Realm of Unknown. Welcome back, Spooksters. We're going to dive right in. Tara's going to give us some history of basically the the church or the Branch Davidians and all the stuff about what made the Waco Siege the Waco Siege. So if you were like me before researching this, I didn't really know anything about this. And people are going to be like, what? How did you not? Well, let me just say I was born in 91, so I was very young when this happened. Okay, don't at me. (laughs) You were literally two. I was literally two. Yes. (laughs) And if a, you know, different path had been for me, I could have been one of these children, which is very fucking scary because of the time frame. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's true. (laughs) Uh, Okay. To kind of paint the picture on understanding everything on how we get to the siege, we have to go back and not only talk about the Branch Davidians, we have to talk about the key player, aka the cult leader, David Koresh. So I'm going to walk us through a lot about him, what went down, and what led up to ATF being like, it's motherfucking go time. So buckle the fuck in. Mm-hmm. So David Koresh was born as Vernon Wayne Howell. His name was not David Koresh. We will get to that much later on how that happened. On August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas to 14-year-old Bonnie Clark and 20-year-old Bobby Howell. Oh, God. Yes. Bobby was an alcoholic carpenter and ended up leaving Bonnie for another woman he would go on to marry. And he would never be a part of Vernon's life. Bonnie would marry a man, and this lasted about two years. It was reported that he had just been released from prison around the time they met, and he wasn't a very good person. He didn't have a job, and he was allegedly very abusive to Vernon. Shortly after this, Vernon was sent to live with his grandmother, Bonnie's mother, Erlene Clark. Vernon would stay with Arlene until he was about six. At this time, Bonnie was a bit older, so like 20 And she had remarried again to Roy Halderman, and the two were going to have a child together, Vernon's younger brother, Roger. It is said that Vernon had a very difficult childhood. He was bullied in school because he was in special ed. He was there for being dyslexic and also having a stutter. Kids called him stupid and other really not-so-nice names. But in actuality, he was very smart. He just processed things in a different way. And being the time period, people didn't understand that. It's also said that Roy wasn't exactly the best father figure to Vernon either, and that he was abusive to him as well. This was even confirmed by Roger in a documentary later on in life. Growing up, Vernon's interests included fixing things such as cars. He loved music and he loved going to church. His mother recalled that when he was a kid, she actually threw a Tupperware party so she could get him a radio. And once she had earned the radio and gotten it for him and all that good stuff, she went in to check on him one day and he had completely taken it apart. When she asked what in the world he was doing, he just said he wanted to know how it worked. Another example of this type of thing is he would tinker with car engines a lot as well. 
And then as far as the church goes, as those familiar with this case, he was part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. In fact, he dived in so deep with this, he actually used it to help with his stuttering. He would listen to sermons of pastors on the radio, and then he would repeat them back verbatim. And he would just do this all the time. And he would preach to family members and to other kids and, you know, stuff like that. And it actually worked. And his stutter went away. In his teens, he kept out of trouble. He learned to play guitar, and he also played in a bunch of different garage bands. While on the other hand, his brother Roger was the one getting into trouble. He had multiple arrests and charges for burglary and things like that. During his later adolescence, Vernon did get into health and fitness as well. Later, it would come out that he had done this because he wanted to become stronger and protect himself from his cousins that had sexually abused him. There had been no evidence that came out from this claim, he said, and nothing really turned of it, so there's no confirmation. And as you will learn, Vernon spews a lot of different things. So kind of one of those things where you got to decide for yourself and... That happens a lot with this stuff because you hear a lot of different versions of things that happen within this case. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Then during Vernon's junior year, he decided to drop out of high school and he attended Garland High School. After this, Vernon had been working and he met his first love, Linda Campion, at a local arcade. He had been battling his inner moral compass with her and basically thought she was too pretty for him and too good for him and that it would also lead to trouble. So he decided to be a little bit standoffish at first versus most boys that are like, I got a new truck. I got a job. Let me take this pretty girl out kind of thing. But eventually he did decide to spend some time with her and they went on their first date and things were fine and he behaved. Air quotes, y'all can't see. So he thought, okay, I got this. I have myself under control, whatever. Dropped her off at home. Then the second time they hung out, so their second date, her parents weren't home and she invited him inside and uh, they had relations. They fucked. I'm sorry. They fucked. (laughs) (laughs) If anything is the greatest part of this episode, it's that. (laughs) Shortly after this, Vernon would move to Tyler. And then a short time after that... Linda had called him up and told him she was pregnant with his child, but said, don't worry, she got rid of it. But in Vernon's mind, since they had sex, they were already man and wife in God's eyes. So he went back to her and ended up convincing her parents to let him move in. Something to note here, Linda is 15 and a preacher's daughter. So this whole thing is interesting to me, and I'm kind of surprised they let that happen to begin with, the parents letting him move in and things like that. And he even slept in the same room in the same bed with her and, I guess, had this, you know, naive trust with them. And it's like, they're two teenagers. What the fuck do you think is going to (laughs) happen? I'm sorry. I just really think that any parent who's like, it's okay, you can move in with me and my teenage daughter and nothing's going to happen. It's like, you're a fucking idiot. Mm Mm-hmm. Even if they're not sexually active prior to that, that's just asking for them to be sexually active. Exactly. So uh, obviously they continued to have sex and Linda became pregnant again. Now, this time her father wouldn't be as accommodating and threw him out. So Vernon believed that he should be with Linda because he still saw her as his wife and that they should get married. And he wanted to take responsibility for the baby, which, you know, not going to knock someone for that. It's true. So he went to the church. Well, the elders of the church didn't agree with this. And Vernon became obsessed with Linda and claimed while praying for guidance, he opened his eyes and allegedly found a Bible open at Isaiah 34, 16, stating that, quote, no one should want for her mate. 
So he took that as a sign from God. Man has a lot of signs from God that are questionable. This is probably the least questionable, but, you know, Jesus fuck. Mm. Things got so bad that eventually Vernon and his whole family were excommunicated from the church. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. That took a quick turn. Right. They were like, you're crazy. Get the fuck out. Goodbye. (laughs) Never come back. (laughs) Please do not come back to church. You know, it's bad when church is like, don't come back. Right. So now from here is where the Branch Davidians come into play. They started out as the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1929, established by Victor Hutif. And I'm probably saying his name wrong. It's fine. He was a man who moved to the United States from Bulgaria. He was also a man who was known for the shepherd's rod. I'm not a religious expert by any means, if you haven't figured that out. But in short, he and his followers believed that the apocalypse was coming in 1959. The Adventist leaders rejected this and his other extreme ideas that he had. Basically, bro, you're fucking crazy. And when this happened, he took himself and his followers away from the church and they moved to Waco to prepare for the second coming of God. But in 1955, Victor would die of heart failure, and then his wife Florence would take over. The congregation would then wait for their Apocalypse Day, which happened to be in April. It was 422 of 59, and of course nothing happened. This caused a number of followers to question everything and eventually leave, but the ones that did stay believed that something was coming, that they just weren't sure what yet. Eventually, Benjamin Roden and his wife Lois would take over the congregation in 1962. Then in 1978, when Benjamin died, Lois would take over as the leader. And I just have to say, I don't, I'm not too familiar with this religion or anything, but I think it's interesting that women took over as the leader, especially because of the time period as well. So that was just kind of like, I don't know, just a random little interesting thing to me. From what I kind of gleaned of this is it was very like royal family-esque. It was very much like a monarchy in this. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. There's very much a monarchy in this that one family kind of ruled them all. And I think like if the women didn't step in and take over, then it would go to a different family. So I I think it was more necessity than it was forward thinking women, woman's power. Mm -hmm. Because I don't I don't think that at all with this particular group. Hell no. So, meanwhile, we're going to circle back to Vernon, a.k.a. David. I will refer to him as David once the name change happens. I just didn't want to confuse everybody. Slash myself. (laughs) Because the other thing is, when watching the documentaries and stuff on this, there was a lot of Davids. Whether they were a big key player or not, there was just a lot. Because it's a common name. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, good. Let's use Vernon until the name change. That makes my life easier. He wasn't going to let a little excommunication from a church get him down. He had a conversation one day with his aunt, who he had been living with at the time, because he did bounce around from family member to family member and other things like that. And he had asked why there wasn't any prophets. And she replied that there was, but they were at Mount Carmel. And when he said, well, you need to take me there. I need to go and talk to these prophets. She had been making breakfast. It was just a normal morning. And basically, she laughed at him and it was like, "Uh, no, kid, eat your eggs kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So he accepted that for a little bit. He decided to travel to California. He wanted to be a rock star, you know, kind of common for this time period. Now, before your brain start jumping to, oh, God, another Charlie Manson, it's not exactly like that. As we know, Charlie Manson had no talent whatsoever. But creepy as it is to say, if you watch any videos and stuff, he wasn't totally bad. Like, he could sing, he could play instruments, you know, that kind of thing. He just didn't have anything to make him stand out to give him that wow factor. He, it was, it was a dime a dozen. Like, yes, he could have some talent, but it wasn't anything like, oh my gosh, 
you know. He knew this and eventually decided to accept that, and he came back to Texas. Once he came back to Texas, he decided it was time to go check out Mount Carmel. Now, for time's sake, to kind of help you follow along, Vernon would arrive there in 1980 when he was 20 years old. And he was something that the people at the compound really hadn't quite experienced before, including Lois. He was described as very down-to-earth. He had shaggy hair. He wore very casual clothes. He, you know, he would wear, like, jeans and a short sleeve button-up t-shirts. Really laid back. But he had a very deep knowledge of scripture. So that was this, this weird combo. The survivors of Waco describe this as a powerful mix, and depending on who you watch get interviewed, you can see that even all of these years later, almost 30 years later, he still has a hold on them, which is the perfect, you know, formula for a cult leader. It's true. Shortly after Vernon's arrival, Lois, who, by the way, is in her late 60s or so at this point, they began having an intimate relationship. And then they would actually announce that Lois was pregnant by Vernon. And everyone's like, what the actual fuck? Proper reaction. They're like, that's not what happens. She's old. This is not a thing. She would go on to have a miscarriage. I say that with, I don't know if it's real or if not, because the age, I don't know. It just depends on whether she's gone through menopause yet. Right. And I mean, there have been cases of women who are older having babies, but... But almost 70? I don't know. Mm, I mean... We'll leave that to you. Yeah, I don't know. I may Google that later, but I'm pretty sure it's very uncommon. Let's put it that way. Yeah. We don't know what happened, but basically she told everybody she had a miscarriage. And then Vernon's reaction was that she, quote, must not have had enough faith to be the spiritual leader, that he was the true spiritual leader. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's a taste of how this guy is. And that there's also this very appalling story from Mark Bro. He is someone that was a right hand man, and I'll kind of talk about him a little bit later. He said that Lois had been taken in a van with a group of them, and while they were driving, they pushed her out of the van and said they didn't need her anymore because they had Vernon. What? Yeah. She didn't die or anything, but fuck still. Now, Mark was someone who was close to Vernon, like I said. He was part of his little inner circle that he called his mighty men. So he definitely would have been a witness to something like this because, you know, he was one of the trusted ones. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough, uh, Lois was so taken with Vernon that he became the spiritual heir for Mount Carmel, even though Lois had a son named George. That should have been the heir because, like Jessica said, think the royal family type situation. And, uh, of course, this would piss George the fuck off, as expected. Now, this feud would last for years. They became archenemies, basically. It was said that George would go around telling people things like Vernon was sent by the devil. And he actually even tried to go to the cops and tell them that Vernon was taking advantage of Lois sexually. When that didn't work, he would start hanging up photos all around Mount Carmel of Vernon with devil and Satan written all over it. (laughs) I don't know why, but like when you said that, like the burn book popped into my head from Mean Girls. Like (laughs) Tim Meadows is out there with a baseball bat. (laughs) George has this burn book that has Vernon, Mark, and all the other mighty men in it. (laughs) (laughs) Vernon made out with a hot dog. That was one time. (laughs) I love it. Oh, God. 
At this point, Vernon had very well settled into the position of he was being told messages from God and, you know, things like that, moving into prophet territory, because at this point, he's the heir of the congregation. So, you know, makes sense. Makes sense. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't know much about religion, because obviously I don't. uh, Cults, if you've watched or read anything, these steps happen. One of the things being that God told him he was to marry Rachel Jones, age 14. And the age of consent in Texas during this time was 14 with a parent. They were married on January 18th of 1984 with the permission of her parents as they were members of the compound. The two of them would eventually have two children, Cyrus and Star Howell. The first child shortly after they were married, and then the other one was born around the time Rachel was about 16 or 17-ish. And then after this event, their marriage, things were calm with George and Vernon for a little bit, but this didn't last too, too long. So it was said that George and his followers officially forced Vernon and his followers, because at this point, people kind of split type of situation. Mm -hmm. Vernon's side, they were forced out by gunpoint off the compound. And when they did so, Vernon, his wife, her family, of course, and then a small amount of followers, roughly, think the group was about 25 or so, they went to Palestine, Texas, which put them about 90 to 100 miles away. So a good little amount, but close enough to still be within proximity. Things were pretty rough here. Let's be real. They were living out of buses. They were living in tents. Things were not developed like they were on Mount Carmel, of course. And they would be there for about the next two years. During this time, Vernon traveled around to recruit more followers to build his numbers. And he went all over the world. He went in the United States. One of his favorite places to go was California. He went to the UK. He went to Israel. And he went to Australia. And people were coming. People were coming to Texas and following him back. So his numbers started to go up. And some try to compare him to Charlie Manson again, but he wasn't necessarily looking for the lost or broken like Charlie was. His followers, they were so diverse. Some of them were legit successful people, people who had well-to-do lives and left that all to come because they believed in what Vernon was spewing. Mm -hmm. And his Israel trip is something that's really pivotal with him and this story and kind of where things take a turn. So while he was there in 1985, he said he had another message from God or a a vision is kind of what it sounded like to me, that he was the reincarnation of King Cyrus of Persia and that his task was to open the seven seals of the book of Revelation and proclaim them to the world. And if you're unfamiliar with what these seven seals are exactly, they're the seven symbolic seals that secure the book or scroll that John of Patmos saw in the apocalypse vision. The opening of the seal of the document occurs in Revelations chapters 5 to 8 and marks the second coming of Christ or the beginning of the apocalypse. Each seal causes an event on its own and happens to include things such as famine, warfare, and other catastrophic things. So You know, buckets of fun. (laughs) Not going to go too deep into details on what each of those seals are. I do have a couple links on the sources page that do a really good job at just explaining and breaking those down. So if you feel like diving into that and that story a little more, it's there for you. But back to John. So in John's vision in this story, the only one worthy to open the book or scroll is referred to as both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb having seven horns and seven eyes. And uh, Vernon's saying he's this lamb. So at Palestine, back in Texas, Vernon really played into this. It is said that he, quote, worked it so that everyone was forced to rely on him and him alone. All previous bonds and attachments, family and otherwise, meant nothing. 
His rationale was that if they had no one to depend on, they had to depend on him, and that made them vulnerable, end quote. So, cult, that word, should be blinking in bright neon lights in your brain right now. If it's not, I don't know what will. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then in 1986, Lois ended up passing away of natural causes. Also during this time, Vernon would begin to take on more wives. And we're going to go into polygamy territory now. Because what's a cult without polygamy? Come on, let's add more to the fire. Something changed in Vernon because up until now, he had been teaching that monogamy was the only way to live. And then suddenly announced that polygamy was allowed, but only for him. Of course. (laughs) We've heard this before. In March of 1986, Vernon slept with Karen Doyle, age 14. Vernon built up an entire new theology around his marriage to her. And this theology was called the New Light, with a doctrine of polygamy for himself, like I just said. And then he called that the House of David. And to him, or per his explanations, sleeping with her and other young girls and women that he ends up sleeping with was a symbol of their marriage, since, of course, they could not legally be married. So he said, if I have sex with you, you are my spiritual wife. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think 14 is appalling, we gonna get worse. He said on his trip to Israel that he was not only told about all the stuff with the seven seals and the house of David and the new light and all that, but there was more. He said that God told him he needed to marry 12-year-old Michelle Jones, Rachel's sister. And then Rachel goes on to say that she herself had a vision from God saying the same thing and that if Vernon did not follow through with this plan that God had put out for him, Vernon would die. So when you're hearing this story, I know at least me, I was kind of like, dear God, please do not let these parents say yes. Please do not. But guess what? They do. And the couple would be married in August of this year. And they would go on to have two children as well, Serenity Jones and Bobby Koresh. Now, I feel like this is also a good point to mention some other wives he had as well to kind of give you the array. Because like I said, he didn't really discriminate. If he thought they were attractive, they were going to be a wife. He had other wives, including Judy Schneider, age 41, the earthly wife, quote, quote, of his other right-hand man, Steve Schneider. Judy and Vernon had a daughter named Mayanna. Sherilyn Jewell, 43, while they didn't have any children, she had a daughter named Carrie. More on her in a little bit. Nicole Gent was 16 when they got married. They had a child named Dalen Gent. Aisha Garafas, age 17, they had one child. And also wives Lorraine Silva, Margarita Viega, Robin Buns, Dana Okamoto, and possibly and probably plenty more. His explanation to his followers for this action was that God told him he needed to help create the House of David, which I briefly mentioned earlier, because he needed to populate the 24 elders from the book of Revelations. This is like his favorite book in the Bible, I guess. So moving on, we arrive to 1987, and this is when George would see the height of the decline in his followers. Most of them wanted Vernon to lead them and to come back to Mount Carmel. George, of course, was like, fuck no. So he was like, "Okay, let's solve this problem and get people off my back about Vernon. He decided that they should have a friendly competition to decide who would become the permanent leader of the people of Mount Carmel. Now, what's this competition, you may ask? It was a resurrection competition. And this is exactly, well, it depends which way you go with this, what it sounds like. The challenge was that whoever could raise somebody from the dead would be the rightful spiritual heir and would be in charge. How the fuck is this real life? Oh, yeah, because it's a fucking apocalypse cult. When I heard that, I was just like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? 
this is this is not a thing. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) When I heard that on the documentary for the first time, I paused it and I went online and I was like, did this seriously happen? Yes, it fucking did. What happens next kind of depends on some things, but I think most of us are in agreement that Vernon's a piece of shit and uh, we kind of get where things go with him. Vernon decided instead of participating in this competition, he would go to the police instead to turn George in for tampering with a corpse. The police told him that they would, of course, need proof that they can't just go in and arrest somebody on hearsay, that type of thing. And I'm sure the local people knew that these people were crazy. So, you know, Mm -hmm. people who are pro Vernon and (laughs) there are people who are said he had turned him in because what George was trying to do was ungodly. While anti-Vernon people, or anyone who just thinks of this subjectively, I think, could probably see that Vernon was probably just trying to get George out of the way because we all know that Vernon was not going to be bringing anybody back from the dead. And the minute the followers saw that, it'd be game over, that he was this powerful, spiritual heir leader dude. So Vernon said, okay, fine, we'll go get your proof. Well, a group of them went to Mount Carmel. There was about seven or so of them, and they get caught, of course, and they end up in a gunfight. So George ended up having a minor injury, nothing life-threatening or anything like that. He was shot in the arm, but he would recover, whatnot. The sheriff's department responded about 20 minutes after this happened, and Vernon and his followers would end up being arrested. The only time I would like to note that Vernon would ever be arrested in his life, by the way, with charges on attempted murder. But when they went to trial in 1988, Vernon claims that he went to the compound to uncover corpse abuse carried out by George for the police. When it was George's turn to testify, he explained how he exhumed a woman's body to raise her from the dead because of the competition. Just very open about it. This, of course, would end up helping Vernon and the others on his side of things. And the jury would decide to drop the charges and acquit Vernon and his men from attempted murder because uh, George be crazy. Hmm. Speaking of that, this turn of events pissed George off. And he was flipping out about how Vernon needed to be locked up. And it just got George locked up himself after being charged with contempt of court thanks to his little stunt because he was like shouting and being violent and aggressive. And, you know, that ain't going to be a good time for you. No. And because, of course, there is always more to the story. A couple other notable things that happened over the course of the next two years. So, one, it would surface that the taxes on Mount Carmel had not been paid in 19 years. That's going to put George in a tad bit of trouble, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, he ended up becoming a literal axe murderer. He would kill Wayman Dale Adair because the man had said to him that he was actually the Messiah. So George decided to split his skull open. And George also believed that he was a spy for Vernon and voiced this openly again. He would actually be found not guilty for reasons of insanity and then would be sent to Big Spring State Hospital there in Texas. And a quick little side story, and this will be the end of George. On September 30th, 1993, he legit just walked out of the hospital and went missing for four days. The Big Spring Police Department, with the help of the Odessa Police Department and the Texas Rangers, were all searching for him. And they finally found him in Abilene, Abilene, Texas. I don't know how to say that. Sorry, guys. And then once he was found, he was returned by the Taylor County Sheriff's Department. So that is three police departments plus the fucking Texas Rangers. And then in February of 1995, the Texas Department of Mental Health and Mental Retardation's Dangerous Review Board declared him, quote, not manifestly dangerous. Seven months after this, he escaped again for three days before he was caught outside the Israeli consulate in New York City. And the reason why he was caught 
or caused attention to himself is because he created a big scene because he was trying to get a visa to Israel. George claimed he was Jewish and that hitmen trained by the Palestine Liberation Organization were trying to kill him. So, you know, they're like, um, the fuck? Hmm. Who the fuck are you? And then uh, on December 8th, 1998, he escaped a third time, but he was found dead of a heart attack on the grounds of the state hospital where he had confined at. So he didn't really escape. He just got lost. Yeah, he got lost or maybe he had wandered off and came back and then had the heart attack. Not really to do much on that. But yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. Now that that side story is over, back to Vernon, because I was like, I cannot not include that. Y'all have to fucking know (laughs) because you're all gonna be like, what happened to George? So now that we're back to Vernon, I'm going to jump into the 90s now. It wouldn't be until May 15th, 1990, that he would file a petition to finally change his name for, quote, publicity and business purposes to what we all know as David Koresh. On August 28th, he was granted his name change. Now, in terms of why he chose this name, I did kind of talk about this a little earlier. Koresh is the biblical name of King Cyrus, and his first name, David, symbolizes the direct lineage to King David, which was the new Messiah who would descend, quote. He said he was, quote, professing himself to the spiritual descendant of King David, a Masonic figure carrying out a divinely commissioned errand, end quote. Now that name change happened, he will be referred to as David for the rest of the episode. Just your little PSA, so no one gets confused. Yes. He also would later discuss with the FBI that the name Koresh also had another, even deeper meaning to him. And it's creepy. So I pulled a little bit of the transcript of the conversation. David, what is Christ revealed as, according to the fourth seal? FBI agent. Pale, a rider on a pale horse. David. And what is his name? FBI agent. Death. David. Now, do you know what the name Crush means? FBI agent. Go ahead. David. It means death. So with all of that, people finally started to kind of question and become skeptical of David for a little bit. And uh, what kicked it off was on August 5th of 1989. So sorry, got to scoot back into the 80s for just a second here. He released the New Light audio tape because he always recorded his sermons and all of that bullshit. In the New Light audio tapes, he said that he had been told by God to procreate with the women in the group to establish a house of David of his special people. And this involved separating married couples in the group. And they had to agree that he could be the only person to have sex with the wives and that the men should stay celibate. Also, David said that God told him to start building an army of God, quote, to prepare for the end of days and a salvation for his followers. So another example of a do as I say, not as I do type of leadership. Everyone's favorite fucking kind. (laughs) It was also said this was a time where a whole new David emerged. He wasn't the man that they knew and that they loved for all of these years, that he made everything about himself. Duh, that's pretty fucking obvious. And he began to become even more controlling, which, I mean, he's been controlling this whole time, but it's like, you know, it's getting bad when these loyal followers are like, Wait a minute, this might be a red flag. So, like most cults say, at Mount Carmel, people supposedly are free to leave if they decide to. You know, no big deal. Go ahead. If you want to leave, go ahead. See you later. Do what you want. You have free will. Now, this did bring some trouble into David's life. Talk of abuse started to come up involving children and adults. And this is a very sensitive topic. So while I'm not going to spend too much time on this, if this is triggering to you, please check the show notes now. I'm going to have some timestamps for you so you can skip this a little bit. An important and very brave individual was someone I mentioned earlier, Carrie Jewell. 
she was forced to sleep with David at the age of 10. Girls around this age, or the age of puberty, so about 10, 11, and up, they would have to wear plastic stars of David to signify that they were now in womanhood. Carrie had been living at the compound with her mom, but her father wasn't a part of this. They weren't together, so I think they were divorced. Mm -hmm. Somebody there at Mount Carmel didn't know Carrie's father, though, and thank God had some common sense because they let him know what was going on. Thankfully, after a custody battle, he was granted custody of her and got her the fuck out of there. Later, Carrie would become, I think, a pivotal person in telling her story and those who couldn't because there's various ranges of abuse with Mount Carmel and some were children. So they couldn't tell their story, but she is someone who could. And she goes, like, if you look her up, she's done not even just in the court. She's done media stuff. Like, there's quite a bit of info on her in case you're curious about her. Mm -hmm. Along with this, David continued to undermine all relationships within the community, as cult leaders do. Any attachment judged by David to be more important to a person than the dependence upon him or God was not allowed. So by 1992, the children were taught to view David as their father. And soon after this, they were also taught that he was God. Yet another shift because now he was going around saying that he was Jesus. Mm -hmm. Very young children. And this I was like, oh, oh, my God. Even as young as six. And in one of the documentaries, some looked younger than that, in my opinion. I don't know. They knew an incredible amount about weapons. They knew all kinds of stuff. It was just a part of their lives. But they would know nothing or not know too much about, you know, age-appropriate things, like schooling things or things like that. Survivors discuss on how when they were kids, they were taught that killing and dying were just a normal thing or an inevitable thing because it was God's will. So they weren't afraid of it. It was whatever. There's footage of kids singing these creepy nursery rhymes about shooting and killing people and all this other stuff. It's chilling and it breaks my heart. It's uh, it's terrible. Of course, any children that had survived after this uh, had been interviewed and, you know, analyzed by children psychologists. They figured out that they, of course, had went through harsh and severe corporal punishment and had dealt with severe food restrictions because, of course, David had to control every single factor of their lives. Everything. Children as young as eight months old, not even one years old. They would be beaten for the smallest of things. Any kind of little thing, they would get beaten. And the older children, on top of that, were sometimes beaten for not fighting hard enough in their matches that he arranged because they were in the process of their paramilitary training that they had set up for the apocalypse. They were also threatened with death if they revealed anything about their life to the outside world or non-believers. They were told that these outsiders would not understand their special ways. And the children were also told and convinced that David would return from the dead and punish them if they betrayed any of the followers on Mount Carmel or if they interacted or told any important information to the bad guys who were non-followers or law enforcement. David also exposed them to a variety of very inappropriate content, such as things of sexual nature. He, in his sermons, would graphically describe sex and things they said were sexual techniques. And these sermons would be hours long and the kids would just be there. He also created an environment which had, quote, an unhealthy, malignant and predatory quality of sexuality and that all the girls were groomed for sexual activity at an early age, as I mentioned earlier, with the stars of David. Basically, the wife thing being related to sex, they were just like, OK, it's just a matter of time until it happens. 
Like, that was it. There was no questioning. And also, when talking with the psychologist later, several of the kids mentioned dead babies and stated that they were kept in the freezer until they could be buried or burned. The fuck? Yeah. Now, this is frustrating as fuck. Carrie wasn't the only one telling what is going on. Other people did as well that had left. And those people included Mark Bro who I talked about earlier, he had, I don't know if they were, I think they got married after, but he had a relationship with uh, a woman who was from Australia and her visa had expired. So she had to go back and shit was hitting the fan. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Australia to be with her. And I believe they're still together because I think that's who's with him in one of the documentaries when they're interviewing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that didn't really get too far. And Nicole Gent's parents, they went to authorities as well. And that was that. And pretty much authorities kind of directed them to CPS because they're like, this is a child issue or whatever, civil issue kind of thing. Well, CPS went out there and David did what David does best and can charm people. It was a pretty quick open and close conversation in an investigation, if you want to call it that, because nothing really came of it. But of course, there's always more. And what leads to later events, in addition to the allegations of abuse and all of that, they were also suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. Spoilers, they obviously fucking were. In May of 1992, Chief Deputy Daniel Weinberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department called the ATF to tell them that his office had been contacted by a UPS representative because there was a report from a local driver. This poor driver. So the UPS driver said that a package he was delivering to them had broken open and inside he saw firearms, grenade casings and black powder. Holy fuck. I pretty much would have shit my pants because I wouldn't know the difference between a dummy grenade and a real grenade. <laughs> right. Ugh. So then on June 9th, the ATF opened a formal investigation and a week later it was classified as sensitive, quote, thereby calling for a high degree of oversight from both Houston and headquarters. On this documentary that I keep referring to, it was called Inside Waco. They say that the investigation kind of started when ATF became concerned because they had been getting reports of people hearing automatic gunfire and obviously automatic weapons. Mm -mm -mm. So then on July 30th, ATF agents David Aguilera and Skinner, they visited the gun dealer of the compound. His name was Henry McMahon. And tried to get him to talk with David on the phone. This turned into David offering to let the ATF inspect their weapons and their paperwork and all of that to be like, look, I have nothing to hide. But Aguilera said no. The ATF also began surveillance from a house that was literally across the road from the compound for several, several months before the siege happened. Their cover story is pretty fucking weak. They said they were college students, but they were... Very obviously in their 30s, they had newer cars and those cars, you know, didn't have any stickers or anything to be like, oh, I go to this college or anything, you know, like a parking pass, nothing. And they didn't even bother keeping any kind of schedule, at least like moving the car to be like, oh, you know, if someone was watching the neighbors, like I'm sure they did saying, oh, they left for class or whatever, like they didn't follow any set schedule, which would raise suspicion. Right. The investigation would include sending an undercover agent, Robert Rodriguez, who David figured out later, though he chose not to reveal that until the day of the raid. So I guess he kind of just kept that to himself. 
Now, the ATF obtained a search warrant on suspicion that David and his followers were modifying the guns to have illegal automatic capability. Mark Bro claimed that David had, quote, M16 lower receiver parts, which I guess, according to uh, my source, says combining M16 trigger components with a modified AR-15 lower receiver. And according to ATF regulations, constructive possession on an unregistered machine gun is like a no-no. It's a big no-no. Yeah. (laughs) Come on now. And this is where shit's going to start to go down. So I am going to hand it over to Jessica and she's going to walk us through the siege and all of that and what's not. So here we go. Yes. Okay. So (laughs) I just want to make one thing very clear. This whole situation, this whole Waco siege is a clusterfuck. I just want it out there to begin with. I don't want anyone to think that, I mean, both sides handled this very poorly. It was just, it was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Tara was talking about Agent Aguilera, and he actually, for this whole thing to happen, they basically had to do some paperwork. And Aguilera did an affidavit where he basically was telling about everything that had happened over the last nine months that they had seen. And Tara mentioned about the UPS driver. So the UPS driver delivered a couple of times in May and June. So basically, a package split open. And in the package were these like, deactivated grenades. I know they said that they were dummy grenades, but I kind of thought they were more like the shell of the grenade. There's like nothing in them to like make them go off, make them go boom. Which if I was that UPS driver, I'd be scared shitless. (laughs) Right. Because like, I'm pretty sure they, unless you know, they probably look the fucking same. (laughs) Right. But they also in there, like they found black powder, like for like guns and stuff. And obviously for making explosives, 90 pounds of powdered aluminum metal, 30 to 40 caliber cardboard tubes to make, I'm assuming, bullets, and 60 AR-15 slash M16 magazines. So like, that's a shit ton of like gun and explosive. I'd be very scared. And Tara mentioned how the farmer had heard them. One of the neighbors, a farmer, and he actually went on to identify it as like a 50 caliber round. And I don't know if you know what a 50 caliber round is, but it makes a big ass hole. Like, I get when people are like, yeah, I bought a gun for protection. But like 50 caliber is like what they use in the military. You can also go to like Vegas and shoot trees down with 50 calibers. Like there's a whole thing. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. So during this investigation, they sent out the Department of Human Resources twice and a woman by the name of Joyce Sparks went out and she went out twice. The first time she talked to a young boy and she says like he was young. She didn't know exactly his age, but described him as a very young boy. And when she asked him about the guns, he said he couldn't wait to grow up so that he could have a long gun, which meant he had a little gun. Mm -hmm. He had like a handgun. The second time that Joyce went out there, David was there and David made her wait before she could tour the property because it was like no secret he was hiding all the guns. So then he like showed her around. They went into this like underground bunker where you could clearly see that there was like these old refrigerators at the end and they all had bullet holes, like big ass bullet holes in them. So even though she couldn't see the guns, she knew they were there because she could see the aftermath of the guns because they didn't clean that up. Right. So basically ATF at this point has enough that they can go in and 
raid the compound for guns and stuff like that. They're going in to do a raid. It's not a, like a knock at the door. We have a search warrant, that kind of thing. It's very much like point and go. And they had actually scheduled it for March 1st of 1993. However, ATF got wind that on February 27th of 1993, the Waco Tribune-Herald was going to publish an article on David. And it was called The Sinful Messiah. And it was all about the polygamy and the child abuse and the child brides. And ATF is like, don't do this. This is like, we're going to do this raid. If you do this, suddenly they're going to know that people on the outside are looking into them. Basically, this newspaper was like, fuck you, bitches. We gonna publish it. Which I'm like, are you kidding me? Like if a government agency came up to me and was like, please don't talk about this case because we're about to do something. I'd be like, oh, yeah, hands off. And then be able to be like, could I have the exclusive on this? Right. They could have taken this opportunity. But they didn't. Because the original plan was they were supposed to go in like after church service when all the people were doing their chores, the men would go off so that the agents could get between the children and the women and then the men with guns. Like this was the whole big plan thing. ATF basically freaked out and moved it up a day. They couldn't stop the article from being published. Well, because the Tribune heard about it, they kind of started talking and this news reporter found out. And this news reporter was going to go out there and like basically, I think, film the whole thing or take report on it. But he got lost. So as he's driving around, he comes across a postman, which would make perfect sense to ask for directions because like postal workers would know roads better than anyone else because they drive them all the time. So he stopped and asked the postman for directions and explained to him why he was going out there, you know, super early. And it just so happened that this was one of David Koresh's brother-in-laws. So they got tipped off. Yeah. So this, obviously, they're like, what the hell? So on February 28th, 1993, the search warrant was executed. Basically, they had to go in between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. And basically, they heard that Koresh was having, he had a meth lab, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so they were also doing a raid because there was a meth lab because it was during that whole like 90s war on drugs thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So early morning of February 28th, David gets his the guys together, you know, his important peeps. <laughs> the mighty men. The mighty men. And is like, they're coming. And he looks right at Robert Rodriguez and is like, I know you're an ATF agent. What you gonna do? And Robert's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like that, like, oh no. And basically was like, shit, I have to get out. And so at this point, Robert's like, I gotta go, uh, you know, to the store. I don't know. Making an excuse to leave. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Peace out, homies. Obviously, David knew. He called him out for it. He's like, I know you're with them. But as he was leaving the compound, all of these people just got together to pray. Which part of me is like, did they do this? Because Robert would go back and be like, they're just praying. So that was like early in the morning. Like we're talking like seven something. So at 945, ATF arrived in a convoy of civilian vehicles because, I mean, okay, where this place is, is I don't think there's a lot of traffic that goes by it. So I think any type of traffic is going to draw attention. In fact, in one of the documentaries, Catherine Schroeder, who I don't like, I don't like Catherine Schroeder at all. I watched a couple of documentaries and she's in, she's in a lot of them. Oh, yeah. And you can just tell that she is like, David is still the most amazing person on the planet. 
she is wholeheartedly in love with him. Mm-hmm. And she said at this point in time, she looks out the window and she sees all these guys with guns coming, which, okay, I'm going to say it. They had time. They could have evacuated the women and children. Yeah, definitely. They could have moved them to a different compound. They could have called ATF. They could have brokered something. They could have known why they were cut. Obviously, they knew they were coming for a gun raid. They could have done something like they could have met them outside. There was a lot of things that could happen. Mm -hmm. She looks out and she sees these guys coming. They're in like SWAT tactical gear and they're like, I'm ready to go. And they get up to the house and they start trying to look in and trying to get in because they're going to like go in. Mind you, they do have a search warrant and they were identifying themselves. There's this one guy. He doesn't actually end up getting in trouble for anything later on, but he basically was in the hallway with David and he said that somebody opened the front door and they saw them and then David shut the door. But they were identifying themselves as ATF agents, that they had a search warrant. So it wasn't like these people just like thought they were under attack from some random group of militants. They were saying like, ATF, we have a search warrant, that kind of thing. Yeah, like showing them. Yeah, right. So here's where it gets a little fuzzy. According to the ATF agents, they heard a gunshot and they began to fire. According to the Branch Davidians, they heard a gunshot and they started to fire. So at this point in time, nobody really knows what the fuck is happening. There is just a quote unquote random gunshot and then firing starts. And basically a 90 minute shootout happens where four agents end up dead and 22 end up injured. Five Branch Davidians end up dead and several end up wounded, including David, who was shot twice once in the wrist and once in the abdomen, which ended up fracturing his hip. So when I saw this, I was like, does the dude just die? Mm -hmm. Like, does he just die of his wounds? No. Like a few minutes into it, this guy, one of this guys named Martin, he actually calls 911 and is like, oh my God, we're at Mount Carmel. There's just these people, they're shooting at us. And, you know, there's women and children in here. And basically he gets to the sheriff, Lieutenant Lynch, and they're trying to like negotiate a ceasefire. But the ATF like communications person switched off his radio. It's like weird, but like they don't know if it was an accident or if maybe like a battery, like they just know that suddenly he wasn't in communication. So they couldn't really be like, hey, there's women and children in there. So and it was going back and forth. I mean, it was a very bloody, it was a very bloody shootout. Right. And so finally... Sheriff Lynch just gets this, a ceasefire. ATF pulls out. The Branch Davidians are like in there now. And mind you, they have windows blown out. They're just stuck in this compound. This hit the highest level of U.S. government like from the get-go. We're talking February 28th, end of day. President Clinton knew what happened. And he immediately was like, get the fucking FBI out there because... ATF obviously can't handle this shit. Right. Like, I don't really know much. So I'm kind of confused why FBI wasn't really brought in. I get ATF's like weapons and stuff like that, but it's just kind of weird that, I don't know, maybe it would have went differently. We don't know. I don't know. I think what it was is that what happened, I think what happened was, uh, (laughs) I think what happened is that ATF was like, we got this. They're just a bunch of like Christians with guns. 
Mm. So, yeah, they underestimated them. Right. And then there was also this conspiracy theory that ATF was about to lose a bunch of funding. Mm -hmm. And this raid would show that their funding that they had was well-deserved. Now... According to ATF leaders, they're like, we would not have like civilian and agent casualties for monetary compensation. And I'm like, bullshit. That happens all the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically, President Clinton is like, get the fuck out there, FBI, and fix this shit. Yeah. And in the inside Waco, I love, I love, I didn't write his name down. and I feel like an asshole because I didn't write it down the lead FBI negotiator. I love him. He's like amazing. Mm -hmm. He gets a phone call like, I think like March 1st or something like that very early on. And they're like, hey, we need you to go to Waco. He turns to his wife and said, I'm going to take a shower. Can you pack me enough for like three days? It's going to be a long one. Can I have stuff for three days? This siege was 51 days long. Like he had no idea. Like this is because it's literally the longest siege in American history. Mm -hmm. So the FBI comes in and the First thing they do is they establish a line of connection with Koresh. Also, I want to say this. During the actual gun battle that was happening, the sheriff, Sheriff Lynch, talked to David directly. And it was so weird because it wasn't even like he was like, yeah, you got to get your people out of here. We'll cease fire. You cease fire. No, he starts preaching end of day shit. Like, you got to know God is real, this kind of stuff. And the sheriff is like, "Uh uh-huh. No, I get it. Uh, Yes, yes. And he goes, hey, David, can I interrupt you right now? Because we kind of have a gun battle happening. And David's like, oh, you're right. He just saw it as another platform. Yep. So over the next three to four days, they basically start communicating and they they start communicating with several high up, including they spent because it was 11 hours and like almost eight hours of that was spent on the phone with David. The FBI like talking. This is like Tara mentioned earlier. And this is kind of how this was working. Like David would basically like talk to them and they come to an agreement. Look, dude, we understand what's going on, but you guys have to surrender. You have to come out. We have to go in. We have to get the firearms. We have to do this stuff. What can we do to make you come out? Like, what can we do for you that would make this? And David was like, ah, I have an idea. I will record a sermon and give it to you guys and you will put it on the national Christian radio. And they were like, oh, my God, done. Mm -hmm. You give it to us. We'll get it out. As soon as it's done broadcasting, everyone will come out. Right. And David's like, yeah, you have my word on it. Well, that happened on March 4th, and they do that. So you're like, wait, that was 51 days long, but the raid was on the 27th, and we're talking the 4th? Mm, Yeah. So basically, it broadcasts, and everyone, the FBI, ATF, the local sheriff, like all of these government agencies are standing out waiting to, like, they have buses. They are basically waiting to, like, be able to handle all of these people coming out. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and nobody's coming out. Finally, I believe... (laughs) I don't know if it's at this exact moment, but I believe that this might be the instant where the little girl comes out with a note pinned to her jacket. When they get a hold of David, David said after the broadcast, everyone was getting ready to leave and David stopped to pray and God told David to wait. So he's not leaving and no one else is leaving. Except for that little girl who like, you know, they were like, bye, we don't like you. I don't know. This was another opportunity. He could have handed over at least the women and children. Oh, most definitely. However, I think what it is, is like, so it's like Jonestown, like the women wanted to stay because they love David. 
Yeah, that. And then he was using these kids as like mini soldiers, too. Mm. And it was great leverage because knowing that there were women and children in there, if the FBI or ATF went back in and were like, bomb the place to end this, they look like horrible people because they're killing women and children. Mm -hmm. So the FBI kept negotiating. This negotiator, like is amazing. He just keeps going and like eventually David releases the first wave of children and then more children and then gives women opportunity to leave. It's just like they're trickling out over the next several weeks because negotiations are still happening. And it's like at one point the FBI is like, look, there's oh, I have to say something about Kathy, Kathy Schroeder. So during the raid, Kathy Schroeder's husband was not at the compound. He was at work. And he was coming home. And this this will just show you, like, the level of sanity these people had. He was coming. He was out, right? The ATF runs up and they're like, what are you doing? Who are you? Announce yourself. Say who you are. And he doesn't talk to them. He just shoots at them. And they shoot him six times, twice in the head. However, that's not the fucked up part of this. They left his body there for three days. Oh, my God. Right. Like, it's super fucked up. ATF, like, completely fucked this shit up. That popped into my mind, but that happened, like, the day of the raid. Like, after the raid had ceased fire, he was trying to sneak back on. But the FBI basically are like, hey, let's have a face-to-face meeting. We won't arrest the person who comes out to talk. We'll, we're just going to negotiate face-to-face. And they were trying to get David to come out. And I think, honestly, David was smart enough to realize that if he came out, he wasn't going back in. They would have arrested his ass because without him, the sheep would fall apart. Right. So he sends out a person by the name of Steven Schneider. Now, Tara did mention earlier, he is like David's right-hand man. He is like the Peter to Jesus, basically, (laughs) here. And Schneider has an interesting relationship with David because David walked up to his wife and was like, I want you. And David and his wife had a baby together. Yeah. And what was weird? When they had their kid, I guess to like outsiders or family or whatever, they tried to lie and say it was her and her like real husband's kid, not David's kid. But later it came out like, yeah, Mayanna is his. Well, and it's interesting because and I'll talk about the fact that they gave them a camera to record and it was very Jonestown in the fact that they start talking Everyone in there talks about how they don't want to leave. This is where they want to be. This is their home. Mm -hmm. They want to stay. And it's like what these people aren't understanding is at this point, lots of them are facing multiple felonies, including attacking police officers and like murder of federal agents. And they're just like not understanding. But when they interviewed her, she says her name is like Linda Schneider Crush. I'm just like, what? So she's and she talks about like this kid is David's Mm -hmm. in the video. And David's sitting around with children, but that's in a little bit. But anyway, so Stephen goes out and meets with them. And they come up with this, like, amazing plan that David would, because he was the leader and that he had shot and killed some of the officers, that he would have to go to prison. But he could still continue his ministry in prison. And they were going to make, like, some special circumstances so that he could preach to his flock in prison. And the other thing is, is that because this wasn't like David's land, it belonged to the church, the branch of Davidians, the, the, the people who lived there could stay on the land. And so it was just that everyone would have to come out. Things would have to get processed. The government wasn't going to seize the land. And then once everyone processed out, people could go back home. 
just sounds like a pretty freaking sweet thing because I don't think they were going to charge him with like murder. I think they were going to, I think it was going to be less. Mm-hmm. The charges were a lot less. They weren't very specific on them when they released it. Steven goes back to David and he's like, David, this is great. You're still going to be able to do everything that you're doing now. You're just going to have to be in prison for a little bit. It's going to be fine. And then, you know, we're going to keep the land and then you get out and we'll be a stronger church. And David was like, no fucking thank you. He said no. And at this point, all communication stopped. They basically at this point, I (laughs) they release non-essentials, meaning people who were never going to be like a negotiation tool. There were more children, more women, even men left at this point in time. Mm -hmm. ATF and the FBI were kind of having turf wars at this point in time because they start doing like old school negotiation tactics where like they would bring tanks in and they would like drive tanks around the perimeter of the property. And if they knew a building was empty, they would like run over it with a tank. They would start blaring music, like horrible music, and they would like warp the sounds so that it was like long and drawn out and they would make it really high pitched. It was like screechy. Some of the fucked up shit they would play is like audio clips of rabbits being butchered at like really high frequencies and like so loud. What the fuck? And mind you, these people are in there. There's no windows and they would play it like 24 hours a day because this actually worked (laughs) in another area. This worked in like the Panama Canal that whole situation, people were like, okay, we're done. We don't listen to it. But the Branch Davidians were like, la, 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 I can't hear you. Damn. And basically, they were trying to make them sleep deprived because if they made them sleep deprived, people were going to be like, I want the fuck out of here. Because trust me, when you're sleep deprived, you will do anything to sleep. (laughs) They cut the power. They cut the water. They cut the food supply because up to this point, food was being like taken in and like they were still feeding them. They would also like put these huge floodlights in their windows. So not only could they like, even if they could get used to the sound, the lights were so bright, they couldn't sleep. And there were children still there. That's terrible. Here's the thing. Like a rational person would have had that for five minutes and been like, you know what? No, I'm done. Prison's quiet. Take me, please. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these are not logical, rational people. These are people who literally they were preparing themselves for the end of day's war. They were prepared to die for their beliefs. You can't rationalize with those people. Everything David had told them, this was part of the opening of the seven seals. And this is what they were told was going to happen. David had told them, this is what's going to happen. They're going to come in. They're going to try to take our land. We're going to stand and fight and we may die and we're going to just stand and fight. So they knew this ahead of time. So it wasn't like this was like, oh my God, why is he doing this? This isn't like with Jonestown, how all of a sudden people are being told they're going to commit suicide and they're going to drink this and they're going to go up to heaven. No, this is like people institutionalized. That's why they were doing target practice that night. That's why they were training young children to shoot guns is because they were preparing for an apocalyptic war. Yeah. So at this point, it's not getting any better. It's about 50 days into this 51 day siege and the U.S. government is like, we need to shut this the fuck down. Over the last 50 days, there had been such a media circus, like there was constantly cameras because there was like a road that you could be safely away from what was happening and still see everything. So there was constant media there. People were coming and watching it. In fact, among those people was one Mr. Timothy McVeigh, who is the Oklahoma City bomber, which later dates on that craziness. So basically, at this point in time, 
President Clinton, he's in office and I'm pretty sure he's like newly in office at this point because I'm pretty sure he was elected in like 92 and took office like early 93. So he's like, hi, brand new, it's me. And he had just appointed the attorney general, Miss Janet Reno. And she basically came to him and said, look, we got to go in there, guns a fucking blaze in and we got to end this shit now. And Clinton is like, "Mm, okay, hold on. This kind of situation happened um, in this place in Arkansas, and there was no loss of life, and that's what I want to happen. I want to have this end with everyone walking out alive, because there's children in there. And Janet Reno is coming at him like, we have to handle this. We have to use the big stick. We have to go in there and just take back this place. And she's using the fact that there's the child sexual abuse that's happening there. She's like, if we let this go on too long, they're going to do a Jonestown and have a mass suicide. And then that's going to be on our hands. And Clinton looks at her and says, go ahead if you think it's the right thing to do. Because she's the attorney general. It technically is her call. She needed his blessing, but like he had already told her no. And she was like the kid with the cookie jar, like the kid that knows there's cookies in there. Like, please, 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 please let me go blow up some people up. Please. It's fine. Janet Reno, you're a horrible human being. So on April 19th, 1993, the order was given to have a tactical force basically go in and reclaim it. So the FBI hostage rescue team armed up and they had 50 caliber rifles and they had CEVs, which are combat engineer vehicles, which are basically these tiny little tanks. So here's the chronological order of what happened. At 5.50 a.m., the FBI tries to contact the Branch Davidians. No one answers. Well, this is according to this website, but according to this other guy who said he actually answered the phone, but no one would talk to them. And basically, the phone was answered. He was like, okay, David, the phone's for you. And basically, they took the phone and chucked it outside. At 5.55 a.m., so five minutes later, FBI deploys the two CEVs. At 6 o'clock in the morning, FBI surveillance tapes hear two men having a conversation. And it goes like this. It says, everybody's awake. Let's start praying. Then a little, like a couple minutes later, Pablo, have you poured it yet? Huh? Have you poured it yet? In the hallway, things are poured, right? So they're talking about like pouring some sort of like liquid onto the property. At this point in time, the CEV one, the first one, shoots two bottles of tear gas into there. Because basically what they think is going to happen is they're just going to like fling these in there and people are going to come running out because tear gas is horrible. You can't breathe. It's a bad thing. The CEVs start punching holes in the walls because they're trying to make more exits for people to flee out of. Right. And they're also deploying more gas. At 9.20 a.m., FBI surveillance records another conversation that says, they got two cans of Coleman fuel down there. Huh? They're empty. All of it, nothing left. So it's kind of like at this point in time, they're like, oh, like it's found out later, I should say, because this isn't what they could hear during it. But basically, it's been connected that they poured like kerosene. So with all the holes that the CEVs have punched in the building, the walls begin to fall down. And so like the first, basically the second floor falls into the first floor, that kind of thing. Around 12 p.m., so about 12.05 
a fire breaks out just like randomly. Like there's no like gunfire. There's nothing really that should have started the fire. I know that someone said that they spoke with a fire marshal and the fire marshal's like, yeah, when I saw them flinging it in there, I knew it was going to blow up because I guess the coating that shoots out the tear gas is flammable. But like in my mind, I'm like, there has to be a spark. Something has to have been like, you know, Mm -hmm. FBI says they did nothing to start the fire and the Branch Davidians say they didn't. However, it is highly conspiracized. I don't even know if that's a word, but it is today that David actually started the fire. That wouldn't surprise me one bit. Right. At this point in time, Ruth Riddle escapes and she basically escapes with a floppy disk that contains David's manuscript for the second seal. So it's like that was kind of one of the things that they were negotiating towards the end is that he was going to come out as soon as he finished his book. It was only going to take him like a couple of weeks to write this book. He basically said it was going to take him like two days per seal to write it. At this point, like because it's been a few minutes, uh, like about 10 minutes, fire trucks have started to arrive, but they were held up and weren't allowed to pass. Now, this has never been said whether like any like law enforcement was like you can't go in or if because there were so many people watching this, they just couldn't get through. Mm, That's terrible. However, I start to think that it's probably a little of both. Yeah. About 1 p.m., so about, it's like 1255, the fire is contained and the compound is basically done. It's burnt to the ground. At 5 p.m., law enforcement find David Koresh's body, but David did not perish because of the fire. 76 people died. Nine people escaped because there was 84 people. Some people were killed because of the wall falling down. Some say that they had cyanide poisoning, like their bodies had cyanide in them. Mm. 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including five children. And it appeared that basically they found David Koresh and Steven Snyder's bodies near each other. And David was shot through the head and Steven was shot through the mouth. They theorized that basically David had Steven kill him and then Steven shot himself. Yeah. On August 3rd, 1993, a federal grand jury indicts 12 people on 10 counts, and they're all branch Davidians. Janet Reno, to this day, I mean, I don't know if to this day, but like at this point in time in history, was like, I stand by my actions. I don't think I did anything wrong. And it's like, uh, bitch, a lot of children died. But those who were captured, there's 12 of them, and they were being indicted for like murder of federal agents. And they were going to most likely receive the death penalty. However, it was basically negotiated down. So five were convicted of manslaughter and causing or using a firearm during a crime. And that would be Kevin Whitecliffe, Jaime Costello, those would be Lenny Avaram, Brad Eugene Branch, and Livingstone Fagan. They were convicted of that. Paul Gordon Feta was conspiracy of possessing a machine gun and aiding Branch Davidian leader David Koresh of possessing a machine gun. So Graham Leonard Craddock um, was convicted of possessing a grenade and using or possessing a firearm during a crime. Ruth Riddle was convicted of using or carrying a weapon during a crime. And they all, okay, and all these other people, everyone up to this point, is getting 40 years. 
And then that slippery bitch, Catherine Schroeder, basically does like, uh, if I plead guilty, can I get less time? And they were like, sure. So they gave her three years because she pled guilty for forcibly resisting arrest. Mm. That's all she got. Oh, my God. The Branch Davidians filed a lot like a lawsuit against the U.S. government, but they did not win because basically at the end of the day, they were told to come out and they did not. And their whole thing is like it was our land. It's our property. This is where we live. But if the police officers have a search warrant or they're telling you you have to come out of your house, you have to come out of your house. If they're just standing out there going, you have to come out and they don't have any proper paperwork, you don't. But if they have the proper documentation, which they did, you're supposed to come out. Mm-hmm. And they did an investigation on this and they interviewed so many people on different side on both sides with ATF and the Branch Davidians. It was basically discovered that a Branch Davidian shot first. And the theory, again, is that it was David Koresh. Yeah, I mean, makes total sense. The church still exists to this day on the same property. They've rebuilt a church and a compound. They have memorialized, I think, part of the compound that was burnt and had fallen. It's still there as like a memorial to what happened. And then there's these beautiful, what looks like granite square slabs that have everyone's name who perished in there, except for David, because... The current pastor of that church, it's very odd because when they first interview him, he's like, oh, no, he was David. David was doing the devil's work. But then is like quickly to be like, basically, it's this whole new conspiracy that David had to come as like Satan before that, like the actual Jesus can actually come back that the end of the days is still coming. So they're trying to say he's like the Antichrist, basically. I mean, I think that's a really easy way to understand it, but they're not quite saying it like that. Mm -hmm. I think what they're trying to do is they've just spun a narrative so that they can continue being who they are Mm. and still have David Koresh be respected and a vital part of their history. I don't know. It's it's very weird. It's like they want him to be like memorialized and idolized because basically if they don't, then it's this huge part of their history that was a failure. It kind of reminds me of like the episode in Parks and Rec when that cult group, though, I think it's the realistic, the realisms or whoever get the date wrong. And they're like, oh, just kidding. It's actually like May 19th. Oh, there's an ice cream special. I mean, May 20th, which I was like, that's my birthday. Please don't end the world on my birthday. Um, It's rude. Uh, <laughs> but. The church is still alive and kicking, and this is just part of their past. And it's it's such a huge and sad part of the American. Mm-hmm. I wish this was taught more. I really hope they use this when they teach negotiation and stuff like that. Like, this is how not to do it. Right. Because they basically just made David Koresh a martyr. And that's not what he is. No, he's a chicken shit piece of, I don't know. Well, I was going to say chicken shit, piece of shit. Dumpster fire, trash. Yeah, he is a horrible person. I mean, I grew up in church and the Bible is very specific when it talks about children. They talk about like loving and cherishing children and protecting children. Mm -hmm. And so for any man of God, quote unquote, to be like, oh, it's okay for me to marry all of these 11 year olds. Mm. It's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lie. And 
it's a perversion. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I do say that I hope David really took account into is that in the Bible, in the book of Revelations, his favorite chapter, <laughs> I believe it's in Revelations. It may be in Matthew. I might not write. I might can't remember. Mm-hmm. But it basically talks about that there's a special place in hell for false prophets and people who abuse their position in the church. And that's the satisfaction we can get out of that is that David, David did not go to heaven. No, he did not. Yeah. It's just a very sad story that should have, like I said, at the beginning of my my time. Mm-hmm. It was a clusterfuck on both sides because ATF was just like, Mm-mm, we want to do it this way. FBI was like, we're going to do it this way. And I think that there was a lot of loss of life that didn't need to happen. Yeah, exactly. And I really hope that those children who did escape and the whoever did leave this, that their lives have changed to be for the better. Yeah, me too. So that wraps it up for us today. We will be back on Thursday for another stabby snippet, and we will see you then. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>